There will be two readings today. The first is 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 verses 1 to 17 and it's about God's promise to David. It's on page 306. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from, from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been... I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of his entire revelation. The second reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. It's on page 1025. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. Uh, well, um, good morning everyone. Just for a preach today, um, I just want to uh, say welcome to church. And um, uh, it's been a while since we just talked about where we're up to as a congregation. Uh, just wanted to um, thank you for bearing with changes in recent times um, and uh, been reasonably up and down in terms of our organisation. And that's sort of beginning to uh, sort out and been a little bit up and down as a congregation but I have noticed since I've been back from overseas a kind of um, greater lightness of heart among us um, and I really want to thank you for that. I think that's just mature and sensible and good and um, uh, I have been really encouraged in the last couple of months particularly by uh, numbers of visitors and new folk being amongst us. So I just want to really encourage you um, remember that when we made changes to our congregations we really did it believing that the Lord was able to kind of fill our building again, reasonably fill our building, as it's always reasonably been filled. Um, and uh, it really is the task of us as a welcoming church to do that. Uh, can I just say, when new people come amongst us, they come to me, um, usually after they've met you, and one of the things they say is how wonderfully welcoming you are. Uh, so can I just commend you for that, so that you might take that for granted in yourself, or in our congregation, um, uh, because you're probably used to it. And it may be you're so used to it you don't even really see it. But can I say that that's what people see, and that's what they say when they come and talk to me about um, uh, what it is to come among you. So I just want to commend that to you and encourage you with that. Let's pray, and we'll um, get into the Word. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for this marvellous Word. We thank you for this season where we turn our hearts and minds once again to the news that the coming of Jesus is always good news and we drink deep from the same well. Uh, Father, you've promised your word will never fail and here we are, we turn to it now. So we pray for its success in our lives and hearts by your spirit. Amen. Um, The beautiful voice is on the move. Um, This week we'll be in Brisbane and Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide. Next week, Perth, Japan, South Korea. The week after that, the Philippines. Uh, It will turn towards California at the beginning of December in the run-up to Christmas. How's your Latin? You know what beautiful voice is in Latin? Bono Vox. Yes, you two are on tour. (laughs) And on Friday night, they're in Auckland. And so was I. And I've never been to Auckland before, but I suspect that was a big night for Auckland. (laughs) And um, the city was packed. Packed. Pubs were full. There were no no rooms in any inn. And believe you, I tried a few, and I was a bit worried for a while that I was going to be sleeping in a stable. And the place was heaving, and it, it was big news that you two were in town. Um, you two seem slightly old to me, I've got to confess, and I'm a slightly old person, but they still managed to pull a crowd, and the town really responded. The news that you two was coming was big news. 
And so they came, Friday night was big, and then Saturday morning, it was all over. I walked into the city to um, lead a wedding of an old trainee of our church, John He, which was great. Uh, and I saw one guy with a slightly, you know, kind of out-of-age ponytail in a U2 Joshua Tree shirt. And that was it. That was the legacy of the great coming of the beautiful voice. That, that was it. I thought, wow, that's over. Right. What if there was a beautiful voice on the move? What, what, if, the, what if the voice of God was coming? What if God's voice was whispering in the world and growing in volume? More people were hearing it. People were beginning to get excited about it. Uh, I don't know if you know the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. If you don't know the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you should leave church now. You're never going to hear a preacher say, go home, go buy a book now, go home, tuck yourself into bed. Just finish, read the whole book. This is a famous little illustration from an early scene in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where four children um, have found their way into a f- kind of fantastic land called Narnia and are met by some um, lovely beavers, well, a fawn and some beavers, and they all gather for tea. And while they're having tea, the, the, the kids who know, barely know where they are, let alone what on earth's going on and how, why animals can talk, um, find themselves having tea, and, and Beaver leans over to them and, and, and tells them something. Now, if you know the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the lion is actually a figure of Jesus. It's a story about the coming of Jesus. And that's really the Beaver's theme over this tea. And at a certain point, as he pours tea, Beaver leans over to the children and says, they say Aslan is on the move, and perhaps he has already landed And you think, what's going on here? And the kids think, what's going on here? And the story says this, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had just floated by. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realise it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Aslan's on the move. Our story today opens in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And um, it's a sort of strange opening. We were there last week hearing about how Elizabeth was going to have a baby and um, now jump six months and as we're going to see, not just jump six months but jump geography from Jerusalem to the outback kind of town of Nazareth right up to Galilee. But these two things are linked, right? Because uh, Elizabeth's now pregnant in Jerusalem. There's something going on. Ah, there's another person about to have a baby too. And lo and behold, she's actually a cousin of Elizabeth's. And you think, something's going on here. There's something afoot. There are plans on the move, and there are. And um, Elizabeth and Mary feel things jump inside them, literally. These two birth stories. And we're meant to, too. We're meant to kind of be like, be like the kids in Narnia, going, what's going on? It looks like something's happening here. 
Could it be that God's on the move? And he was. For hundreds of years in Israel, not a word from God had been spoken. Since the end of the last page of the book of Malachi. In that time the Greeks had come and bossed them round and then the Romans had bossed them round. The great kings of the past were so long past they were almost legend, barely history in people's minds. And I, I think the Israelites had become accustomed to being just some nobodies in a far land. But now in these stories we hear whisper of things happening that should make us lean in. And it is the sound of a beautiful voice. God is speaking his word again. And not a single word of these words will fail. That's what we're going to see today. Two things, faith in the face of trouble and fullness in the face of failure. Firstly, faith in the face of trouble. What follows today is an episode very similar to last week. It's just like the appearance of God through the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and Elizabeth. In fact, I've made a list to show you. You might remember last week. Last week there was news of a child, there was an angelic visitation, there was a declaration of God's favour, there was an Old Testament prophecy kind of smack bang in the middle of the passage and a reminder that God doesn't speak his words lightly. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like what we just read. <laughs> All those same things happen again. It's, it's, like a, it's a parallel passage, right? Um, well, kind of. It is parallel, but it's not an echo. You're not just hearing the same thing again. There's actually a contrast. So all the same stuff happens, but the story's actually really, you know, Luke wants to point out to us that some different things happen, some opposite things happen. And the first thing is that when this news of a child comes, it's more like this. It's troubling news of a child. Uh, what do I mean? Well, um, open your Bibles again to Luke chapter 1, and you'll see. And I should have had mine open, sorry. Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 26. In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now that all sounds great. But look at Mary's response, verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I think normally when an angel shows up, you'd assume it's, you know, like kind of good news. <laughs> There's a reason for Mary's trouble and the kind of emotion gets a little bit ahead of the narrative, but we're meant to be unsettled already like Mary is. And there's a reason why. She's going to have a child. Now, I don't know if you notice that little word in those verses, virgin, but that suggests some kind of trouble, and it's the exact opposite of Elizabeth. Elizabeth was an older lady who'd longed to have kids all her life with Zechariah, couldn't. And when the angel comes and says, you're going to have a child, it is amazing news. She goes, in her mind, from disgrace to grace, from disfavour to favour. But when this angel shows up to Mary, of course, Mary... A virgin pledged to be married? The, the trouble is the opposite, isn't it? Uh, she's now threatened with possible disgrace. Um, we're meant to share something of her trouble at this news and wonder what kind of greeting this might be. So you'll see that she receives trouble, troubling news in this story. 
And yet, here's the second contrast, responds to this initially troubling news with great faith. You see, last week, Zechariah, God spoke God's words to Zechariah, and Zechariah kind of responded by saying, Really, Lord? Do you remember that? And there was a consequence for that. The consequence was Zechariah was struck mute for, I can't remember, was it a week? A while? Until after the child was born. Oh my goodness, that's a long time. I could not speak for 10 minutes. <laughs> it's extraordinary. And in some ways this is quite a light judgment on Zechariah in that it's a story of great favour of God. But it's such a serious thing not to believe God at his word. And the last chapter pointed that out. Zechariah said, how can I be sure of this, verse 18? I'm an old man, my wife's well along years. And God says, well, I'll assure you, but now you'll be silent. Why? You didn't believe my word. That's what he says, verse 28. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. You didn't have faith, Zechariah. So he receives what is a light and transitory, nine-month, kind of judgment. In today's story, when the news is not kind of good news to the disfavoured, but kind of troubling news to the otherwise kind of okay, promising we find Mary respond with immediate faith. This is bizarre. It's not as if she shouldn't have questions. I know people didn't have PDHPE classes in first century Israel, but I'm pretty sure Mary didn't think you got pregnant by holding hands. So no doubt she had questions, but note her response to the Lord. Her response to the Lord is given at the end, verse 30, um, 38. She's told you will have a child... Verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. And Mary says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She responds to troubling news with immediate faith. And last week's story, we're meant to just note Zechariah's kind of wrestle with trusting God. In passing, it's a, it's a small theme of that last passage. But it becomes really the theme in this passage. And Mary, if Zechariah is a troubling note, Mary is, comes highly commended to us for her faith. Well, there it is. There's faith in the face of trouble. And we discover there's a real reason for that faith, and that is because God is giving fullness in the face of apparent failure. Faith in the face of trouble, fullness in the face of failure. Why trust God's word? Why trust God's word? Well, the other element of this story, right in the middle, is this, the Old Testament prophecy bang in the middle of the passage. Um, I wonder if you noticed it. Uh, it's easy to miss. It kind of gets sounds sort of super biblical. The rest is like fascinating narrative and tale, and then in the middle you get this dense kind of history lesson of stuff. Uh, from verse 30, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, you've found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. It's all good there, right? And he says, He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And it sounds so elaborate and poetic, and the language sort of recedes into history. And the more it recedes into the history, the further it seems to travel away from us. Have you noticed? And, and the kind of more remote and foreign and strange it feels. So that all you can kind of hear back from that history is like a little strain of, once in royal David city. 
And you know that it's got something to do with Jesus, but maybe you don't quite know what. And that's why Logan read that first reading, which is 2 Samuel 7. And with God's great promise to David, where David builds a palace and goes, oh my goodness, I've built myself a palace and God's, you know, God's covenant's in a tent. He says, let's build a house for the Lord. And God says, no, David, you won't build me a house. Your son will do that. But what I'll do is I'll build a house for you, not your palace. I'll build you a royal house, a line of kings that will always be on the throne. I'll give you a son so great his, his rule will reign forever. And the Israelites, they know this, of course. They know this. That's why at the beginning of the passage, where Joseph is pointed out as a, a descendant of David, it's never been forgotten by the Israelites, but it's kind of ancient history. It exists in a whisper, a kind of um, sad memory of the things that should have been. Or perhaps a whisper of a great thing that might yet come. And we're told, it's coming. God's on the move. That word from a thousand years ago, which just looks smashed by the experience of Israel. really was just utterly destroyed by terrible kings and the division of kingdoms to the point where when Jesus arrives, the person on the throne in Jerusalem isn't even in the line of David. They're puppet kings put there by the Romans. This smashed history of God, this sad kind of visage of failure is answered by a word. You know that word I said a thousand years ago? Well, now comes true. Why? God tells us why, verse 37. For no word from God will ever fail. Elizabeth was the demonstration of this. The great old promise to David is the content of this. And now Mary will see it in her own life, in her own belly. No word from God will ever fail. What a great little companion story to the one last week. To the story in Jerusalem, we have the story from Nazareth. Great news of favour in Jerusalem. Great news of favour in Nazareth. Wonderful turnabout of fortune. Slightly troubling and strange course of events in Nazareth. But great news. And the testimony is, the theme, the heading, the kind of chorus of the song is, no word from God will ever fail. Well, we're people of faith. You'll remember that at the beginning of the book, um, Luke writes to Theophilus, a guy who's become a Christian, and, um, but maybe doesn't know everything about what he's kind of come to believe. And so Luke's writing, verse 1 to 4 of chapter 1, we're here to give him certainty about the things that have been handed down to Luke and which he's now carefully investigated and given to Theophilus. So that Theophilus might have a firmer faith. He might know the certainty of the things, have a concrete catechism. Right? That's, that's the aim of the book of Luke, book of Luke. And the aim of this passage, it seems to me, is to encourage 
Well, certainly to encourage Mary, who gets the lesson straight away, and encourage us as reader that the words of God are sure, that they are certain things that you can put your faith upon. So we need to finish there, don't we? We need to think about our relationship with God's word. We are people of the book. don't know if you know that. We get called the people of the book. It's because we often have this book around, and it's more often than not, I pray, open. Uh, we kind of connect it up, we study it, we kind of pray it, we sing it. And the reason is because we are people of the word. We're, that's fundamentally what it is to be a Christian, is to be a person attached to God's word. Why? Because I've never seen him. Have you? No, you haven't. We have believed a word. The great message of God is described as a word. In fact, the content of the message of God, which is the Son of God, Jesus, he is also described as the capital W word. God is speaking to us. He's always been speaking to his creation. And his creation has largely been not listening. But we are the people who, by God's grace, who are like pulling the wax out of our ears and the kind of stupidity out of our heart, have opened ourselves and begin to listen. This is fundamentally what it means to be a Christian, is to, is to have a willing relationship to these words as the word of God about his great word, Jesus. That's what it is to be a believer. So I need to end with three quick encouragements. Firstly, to know the word. I often worry that as a pastor I've not encouraged us enough to read our Bibles. Um, we, we, we do this interesting thing in our church. We put these pew Bibles right there. And the reason we do that, you won't find them in every church, but we do that here because we want any person that comes into our church when we say the reading today is from Luke 1, and you'll notice we always say a page, page 1025, because we don't assume that people know where Luke is. So we, we like hold people's hands up to the word, right? So everyone can get it open. So everyone will meet, hear the voice of God, when they come into this church. I think it's a great thing. But it's a funny little thing, because you might get the impression that the Bible's just in church and you need someone to tell you the page number. <laughs> and I worry that I haven't encouraged you enough to make sure that you have a Bible at home that you love that probably has different page numbers and um, that it's open at home. And they might, if you're in church long enough, enough years, when they say page number, you might actually already be halfway there because you know that passage because you've been there before and it's a path that you love to tread. And I worry that I haven't encouraged us enough to really be people of the word all the time, to be in conversation, which is firstly listening, with our God all the time. Uh, I, I, I really do worry about this. The um, wife of the previous two ministers ago was famous for saying, accosting people on Sunday and saying, have you been reading your Bible and praying? She said, I'm praying, does she? All right. Okay, there's some of the heritage of her, of her spiritual abuse. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Of her deep spiritual formation. She knew what the Christian life was about, right? She knew if she was going to say anything to anyone in this church more than once, it was going to be, open your Bible and talk to God. Listen to him and talk to him. She knew what the life was about. How about you? Like, let's not be, let's not be, we're not people who live by Christian intuition here. 
We're not, we're not having hunches about God. We're not kind of trying to guess at his will. We're people of the word. So let's know the word. And then if we know the word, let's trust it. It's really easy to trust God's word when you don't know it. When you don't know it, God asks almost nothing of you. <laughs> it's a thin relationship. But when you know the word, then you're called to trust it because it's God speaking. And that's when it gets really, I can't work out whether I want to say the word exciting or difficult. Why? Because he speaks about extraordinary things like our anger and our love and the necessity of forgiveness, about wrath and about not being ashamed of Jesus and of trusting God for daily bread and finding real rest in him. Just extraordinary things that, frankly, sound like they come from another world. They certainly don't sound like my life half the time, but they're so for this world and my life. And yet um, I frequently just don't know how to trust it. And this is extraordinary because if there are people of such competence in our world and in my life that if they were to say, oh, Jim, you need to do dot, 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 I would listen to them in a second. I would trust them without pause. And yet here we have someone who knows more about our life than we do and more than even the wisest person we know does. Dallas Willard, a writer I'm reading, occasionally you've got to find a Christian writer who's like, you know, like a spiritual father. Anyway, I've decided to adopt Dallas Willard as my spiritual dad for a while. He's an American, you can tell by the name, and um, I don't know too much about him except that everyone kept mentioning his name. And they seemed to enjoy being his kids, so I thought I'm going to join the family. He said this, Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives in the universe. It's not possible to trust Jesus in matters that we do not believe him to be competent. But the biblical and continuing vision of Jesus was of one who made all of created reality and keeps it working, literally holding it together. Colossians 1.17 And yet today we think people are smart who make light bulbs and computer chips. You see his point? He's saying we're, we're bedazzled by people who do oh, what look like extraordinary things to us, and yet we have the, the creator of our souls who we might lean on. Like Mary did. In the face of great troubles, she saw God's great competence. No word of yours will ever fail. May it be fulfilled. So know the word, trust the word, and finally, let the word do the work. I was very moved by a book written in the honour of a local pastor. You might know him. His name's Philip Jensen. Um, he, someone wrote a book, well, about 10 people wrote a book in his honour when he retired. Um, and it's one of those books, the title's so great, you suspect it's better than the contents, and I really hope it is because I don't intend to read the book. But the title is just, I remember hearing the title and thinking, why didn't someone tell me that? 20 years ago. Let the word do the work. If God is powerful, if God is speaking, if God is saying things that he will do, then why not let him do it? <laughs> I just felt a weight drop off my shoulders. I thought, why am I standing in the way of his word? Why would I ever do that? Why would I ever think his word would need 
kind of some little intervention on my part or your part, some little help, some little kind of interrogation of, some little um, assistance along the way. Um, Mary said, may it be fulfilled. And it was. And the word did the work and it grew her belly, pressed up against her ribcage, took her into short-term shame and 2,000 years of honour. But straight away she just trusted God and let the word be as it was to her. And it filled her. We're people of the word. People of the word. And we're people of the word for good reason. And you've heard it today. Because no word from God will ever fail. Let's pray. Our Father, in a world that loves to guess at you and would have you show up on its terms, you have spoken and we have listened. Father, you've made us people of your word because you addressed us. We couldn't do anything but be addressed. But our hearts are hard and we often, we often want to see things much more than we want to hear you. And so, Father, we ask that you'd continue to change our heart by your word. That you'd work in us your good pleasure, just as you have spoken. We're so confident of these things in us, Father. We're so desirous of them. We're so expectant to see what they will produce. And we so long for Jesus. Amen.